I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller. There are teachers, and then there are master teachers. Any school building considers itself lucky to have even one or two on their faculty. Master teachers are not only great at what they do in their own classroom, but they are often looked to as leaders and mentors for other teachers. Lynn Wilcox is a master teacher. She lives in Lakewood, Colorado. In this episode, she's going to share what goes into making a master teacher and how great teaching really can make a difference in the life of a child. As modern Americans, what do we do with stories that don't line up? Because it's been a a well-documented problem that history has been heavily edited by the victors over time. And instead of joining the cancel culture movement, where you just throw out things that you disagree with, I want kids to, to look at what's there and realize that the truth is some combination of all of the stories that were present. And how do we make sense of that in a way that honors the best of the traditions for all people and doesn't endorse all of the bad practices. Like all of our shows, we're going to start at the beginning. Tell me about your hometown. Oh my goodness. I grew up in downtown Detroit. And my brother, my old, I'm the oldest. So the brother that comes after me, he would have been 13 the year we moved. And my parents were really trying to move us out of the ghetto before he was old enough to be optioned by gangs. He didn't have the best um, judgment in making friends. The best protection they could afford us is to get us out of the city. You have to understand that living in Detroit in the 80s was a lot like living in a war zone. Guns, drugs, large-scale fires that were set intentionally. It, It was normal. I mean, there were prostitutes that worked the car pickup line outside of my K-8 where I went to school. But poverty's poverty, right? And we didn't have the money to move. We didn't sell our house. We gave it away. And it took them a while to be able to figure out where they could afford to live. And when I was a teenager, my parents moved me to a really small town in the Thumb in Michigan. We were about 45 minutes from anywhere else, one stoplight, and it had not changed since my parents had lived there when I was um, an infant. And poverty being what it is, we went from urban poverty to rural poverty and moved out to the sticks. Did you have a traditionally happy childhood? No, no, I wouldn't say so. My mom uh, was mentally ill. And she struggled with issues that were a result of being the victim of childhood sexual abuse. And my dad struggled with my mom being crazy. So really, um, while they wanted traditional and happy, that's not what we got. We were on our own to make things happen. We got a lot of looking out for each other as siblings. And uh, we got a lot of responsibility before we were really old enough to have it. Given that kind of family dynamic and 
because all kids in poverty have to create some kind of refuge. What did you do to get away from all that? Oh my God, I read books. I could, I could vanish from reality in a book. And I was never in any trouble, you know, because I was always reading. So it was really easy, especially when I was little. My mom would drop me off in downtown Detroit at the main library because, you know, there weren't any people that shouldn't really go to the library at the library. I mean, we did have some homeless people, but they never bothered the kids. If I hadn't, if I hadn't read, I wouldn't have known that there was a world outside of the one I lived in. Let's fast forward a bit. Where were you when you decided you were going to be a teacher? This is the irony. I did not want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a professor. Through college, with my degree in English, I was so tired of taking care of my brothers and sisters that I did not want to work with children at all. I was just burned out. And so then I started looking into the, the education program. And at the time, the University of Colorado at Denver had a master's program in secondary education, but it emphasized urban education. Um, they were really targeting teachers um, that they were going to send back out into urban schools. And that really resonated with me. To get your degree, you, or to get your license, you have to student teach. Right. So my first round of student teaching was in dropout prevention at Manual High School. It was absolutely terrifying. It was terrifying and the kids wouldn't try. And I would come up with this cool, innovative lesson and I'd go try it. And like 30% of the kids would be engaged. And then I'd go to my night class and I would cry because I was so frustrated because nobody cared. And it was just hopeless. And I was like, wow, I don't know if I can do this. But being an older student, I couldn't afford to not work. So that instead of doing my final year of student teaching, I took a job in Ellicott and they had told me that they could get me alternatively certified. Unfortunately, the principal um, didn't mean it. I taught for them for a year. He did not help me get certified. So then I transferred to EADS out on the plains to complete my license through the alternative licensure program. I did take a pretty circuitous route to becoming a teacher, but I got some really great experience. What would you say were some of the good things about teaching in a small town like that? So everybody knows everybody, right? And school, I hadn't started. School hadn't started yet, but I had moved in. I'd been there a couple of days and my dog ran away. And so I'm just outside starting to look for him when a pickup truck pulls up. It's full of teenage boys. And they're like, you're the new teacher. And I'm like, yeah. And sure enough, they had Sam in the back. Um, and so they just brought him back. And, and that was pretty cool, you know, which I appreciated because I didn't know how long it was going to take me to find him where there's just nothing but cows and fence. They also showed up a different night after the school year started, um, and it, this was a mixed group of boys and girls with pizza and beer. And I'm like, you guys can't, you can't do this. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, so-and-so does. And I'm like, well, so-and-so is sleeping with someone on the school board. I am not. So you can't party here. You're going to have to go somewhere else. You know, we had a lot of... Uh, 
university teacher in the country school moments. Like um, I had to teach computer sciences. And so I'm trying to get this case off a tower because I'm going to show them how to uh, swap out hard drives or something. And I need a knife so that I can unscrew it, but I don't have one. So I, I asked somebody to go to the office to go get me a screwdriver or something. And this kid whips out a knife. It's an ag knife. He scared me to death and everybody laughed so hard. I thought they were going to pee their pants, including my principal. The funniest thing she'd ever heard. And, oh, my favorite, we wrote a melodrama. Well, one of our students who's uh, severely challenged brought an actual gun to the production as a prop. And my student stage manager came up to me and said, you're not going to like this. Student X brought a real gun. What, what do you want to do? And I was like, oh, my God, where is he? And he's like, you really can't go chasing around after it, him. And I said, well, um, we can't have a real gun in a production. Like, there are so many ways this is wrong. And he's like, well, I'll go get it. Where do you want me to put it? And I'm like, well, I can't send you to go get it. You're a kid. And he says, miss, which one of us has a deer rifle in the rack outside? And I was like, okay, you have a point. He goes, have you ever fired a gun? And I'm like, well, no. He's like, just give me your keys. And he went and relieved his friend of his weapon and locked it in my trunk. All's well that ends well, right? So you survived the year, whole snakes and all. Did you ever consider sticking around? I had considered it, um, but I was single. And there really isn't a lot of single people on the planes. I think if I had been married when I had gone out there to teach, I totally would have stayed. It was a great place to raise kids. You know, the children were genuinely nice. Most of them had manners. We didn't have the discipline issues that you get in the big city. You already know which kids are likely to be a problem. And you know why? Because you know the whole backstory. When something bad happens to someone in the community, everybody shows up. You know, it's just, it's a different world. And as a, a teacher who's getting older, like I'm in my 23rd year in education this year, I, I have often caught myself thinking, wow, maybe I should transfer back to a rural school now that I'm older. Like when my kids get out of high school, because I would just love it. It would be so much easier than what I deal with every day. Let's bring our story into the present. Tell us about your family. So I'm married to a guy in IT security. We've been married for about 17 years. That's Bill. And we have two kids, um, Elizabeth, who is 15, and Duncan, who is 13. Both of them are twice exceptional. And we have a big, fat, lazy, fluffy golden retriever named Bailey. I'm asking perhaps more as a parent than a teacher. Even in a non-COVID world, what challenges have you experienced educating your own children? For starters, the local school district that I live in tried to tell me when my son was three that he didn't have any educational barriers, and they refused to give him services. My son has autism. So we had a, a difference of opinion that led sure. to me homeschooling both of my kids for seven years. 
Wow, that's a good chunk of their whole experience. It is. Um, Elizabeth had gone all the way through kindergarten in private Montessori school, but she um, she was bored. And when she's bored, you know, smart kids, they find things to do. So she tried to run away from kindergarten with her boyfriend and they caught her climbing over the fence. And I came to pick her up and I said, what was the plan, Lizzie? And she said, well, the city bus stops on that corner over there. And then we were going to take the city bus to Sean Street. And I said, well, how are you going to get in the house? Sean's parents aren't home. And she's like, oh, he's smart. He has the garage door code. And we were just going to play until school was over. <laughs> and at that point, we considered that maybe school wasn't going to be hard enough for her. Well, clearly she was planning four moves ahead. Right? We looked at a lot of different options, but given my earning potential as a teacher, it was going to be cheaper in the long run for me to stay home with the kids than to um, put them in private school and continue working. And Duncan's learning challenges were just starting to show up at this time. It all kind of came together. So I was home with the kids. I was homeschooling. And I was orchestrating all of the supportive services you'd normally have for kids with IEPs as a private citizen and not as a part of a school district. I can only imagine all your skills were brought to bear in being your children's only teacher for that many years. Yeah. And, you know, um, secondary teachers aren't given a generalist background in all content areas. Um, so I learned a lot of math and history and science that wasn't covered in my teacher prep background, which I think in turn made me a better teacher because now I can do uh, cross-curricular programming without too much difficulty. And that really leads to my next question, which is, what do you think running a homeschool did for you in your development as a teacher? Well, one, like I said, is the general's background really helps me work better with my teammates. I have a better understanding of exactly what they're trying to do and a better understanding of how literacy supports those tasks. The other thing I learned is really directly related to, to the autism training through working with occupational therapists for years and years and years. Um, I've come to learn that sensory regulation is not linear and it's not lockstep even for neurotypical kids. So a lot of the behavior we see in middle school is really just sensory dysregulation due to puberty. It's completely normal, but you can use the same occupational therapy strategies to help kids externally regulate and it brings the stress in the room down. So you just kind of treat them all like they're on the spectrum. Okay, what would be a good example of that? One of the things is um, including, it's called heavy work. So this is going to be anything that allows the kids to apply pressure, pushing or pulling on their major joints. So one of the things I did, especially with COVID, when we weren't allowing them to move classrooms, was mm -hmm. we reinstituted recess for middle schoolers. And I just insisted. I said, they cannot think until they move their bodies. This is, this is how their brains are working got to be part of the day. Um, so they had PE, they had recess for lunch, and then we had another break. So they were getting three breaks a day where they were allowed to run around, play tag, play basketball, play soccer, 
and get that stimulation. And it yeah. really it went a long way to regulating behavior issues. So you currently teach both middle school and college. Yes. How do you adapt your techniques when even in the same day you're moving from one group to another? I think the difference is that most college students can actually follow written directions. So they are much more independent learners. I'm teaching virtually still at college, not in person. So, you know, I have some well-crafted modules and for the most part, they're completely independent. They've got lecture notes, they've got examples. We do some discussion dialogue about the ideas that support good writing, like using pathos, ethos, and logos in your writing, some higher order thinking extension activities, things like that. And with the middle schoolers, it's much, much more foundational. So I try to think of them like writing is a, a spectrum progression, right? And so they're at the bottom end of this progression where I'm teaching the nuts and the bolts. And by the time they leave the eighth grade, they can write, you know, a rudimentary essay. And hopefully by the time I get them in college, we've got the essay down and now we're branching out into other kinds of professional writing. So we call this podcast American Storyteller. As a teacher, I have to ask, what's your approach to storytelling in the classroom? I tell my students the only reason I became a history teacher was because I got sucked in by the stories of the different people. I never liked history per se until I had this one teacher in high school and he told the best stories. He would get really animated and he was so into it. And all of a sudden, I discovered I could remember all those obnoxious little dates and events if they were tied to a story. And so that was one thing that I, I tried to bring with me from my education into my practice as an educator was grounding things in stories. So this year, we actually started out the year with teaching memoir in English and talking about oral tradition and history. And we're talking about Storytelling is, is how we shape our lives, and it's how we record our history. And the history depends on who's telling the story and where they are in the conflict that's in the story. So they're learning all the, the traditional things, right? The parts of the story, the sequence of events, um, and literary traditions in English. And then in history, we're looking at how does your point of view change how the story is told. So if you're going to talk about um, the colonization of the United States, how does the story change if you are an indentured servant or if you are um, an indigenous American or if you are a somewhat wealthy person coming from Europe? How does the story change? And then as modern Americans, what do we do with stories that don't line up? because it's been a, a well-documented problem that history has been heavily edited by the victors over time. And instead of joining the cancel culture movement, where you just throw out things that you disagree with, I want kids to, to look at what's there and realize that the truth is some combination of all of the stories that were present. And how do we make sense of that in a way that honors the traditions, honors the best of the traditions for all people and doesn't 
endorse all of the bad practices. You know, when I was in middle school, I'm not sure I had that level of critical thinking skills. I mean, that's pretty sophisticated stuff. What kind of response are you getting from your students? You know, kids are a lot more sophisticated now than when we were, first of all. A lot of the kids are deeply invested in social issues, whether they're LGBTQ plus issues or they're racial issues like immigration, knowing our population like you do. You can imagine immigration is an issue no matter where we go. Racism. These are these are things they are passionately invested in. And so um, one of the things I spent a lot of time this summer doing was designing um, project based learning initiatives so they could really dig in and talk about the things that they want to talk about during the time period we're studying. Right. But I have to ask, uh, when you use a term like cancel culture, is that a term that's used in class? I mean, do they really know what it means at that age? They do know what it means. It's not something we talk about in class. They might bring it up, but that's way too political. So is the idea of applying critical race theory. So what we're what we're asking the students to do is largely the, the central skill behind this project is identifying bias and knowing how to use it appropriately. And I assume not just calling something bias because someone disagrees with you. Right. But being able to say, okay, so I read this account, whether it's a first person primary source or a secondary source, and I think this has a conservative bias because, and being able to give a reason. When COVID started, I did an entire media unit on bias in the media, and we took examples from all different kinds of media. And the kids rated the factualness of each type of media from, you know, complete scare tactic to mostly factual. But there were a couple of things that I couldn't locate from another credible source. And, you know, in the hallway, you'd hear kids saying, oh, did you hear this on the news or whatever? And somebody else would be like, well, did you check your sources? They were terrified. They were terrified. And so we read um, about the yellow fever in Philadelphia. So I taught that pandemic and we went through the media and we talked about the media in class every day. And they had a chance to really wrestle with, well, does this sound plausible or does this sound like somebody's trying to scare people into doing what they want them to do? And then always leaving them to make up their own minds. And I think that's where I, as a professional, sort of depart from the political nature of some of these conversations. I don't need them to have a right answer. I need them to have a thoughtful answer. And if I can teach them to just question enough that their answers become thoughtful, then as a middle school teacher, I've won. The critical thinking will come developmentally later, usually halfway through ninth grade or so. Um, but if I get them to stop and think at all, before anything comes out of their mouth, then it's it's a victory. And it was, it was amazing to see. It was probably one of the most powerful moments in my career as a teacher, especially given how relevant the topic was and seeing how differently they engaged when they cared about what they were learning. I think you may have answered most of my next question just through the stories and outlook you've shared. 
But what is it you think really distinguishes someone as a master teacher? I think central to the idea of being a master teacher is that you're not afraid to fail in front of the kids. That you can walk into a room and start a lesson, and when you realize that it's not working, you're willing to say, okay, wait a minute, this is not working. Let's talk about our process. What's broken here? What do we need to fix? And then fixing it for them. That actually happened when I worked with you. It was 10th graders, and I hate teaching 10th grade. It's my least favorite grade to teach. And we, I don't even remember what we were reading. But it was something, you know, in the canon, and it was on the approved book list, and the kids just were not talking at all. And finally, I'm like, okay, somebody please tell me, what's wrong with this book? Do you hate it? Is it boring? Um, did you all just go to the same party last night and not do your homework? I'm like, what? <laughs> what is the problem? And one of the girls finally raised her hand and said, I did the reading, but I don't know what you want us to talk about. And I'm like, has nobody explained to you how to study a novel? And they're like, nope. And it never occurred to me that they got to 10th grade without doing a novel study because we start them in the sixth grade. But this particular group did not have novel study skills. And I immediately collected all the books. And they're like, we can just stop. I'm like, yeah. Really? I'm like, well, I'm the teacher. I'm in charge. So yeah, let's turn them all back in. And I went and I got out some short stories and we started from the beginning and I taught them how to interact with the text with short stuff before we went back to a novel later. But being willing to say this isn't working and I'm going to fix it got me 100% buy-in from the kids in the room. And, and that was something that I took with me through all the years. And now I'm, oh my God, I'm in charge of induction for five new teachers this year. And that is the first thing I told them is that you have to be okay with stopping class if it's broken and saying, this is not working. Let's, let's debrief. Why isn't this working? Where are you struggling? Where am I struggling? And doing some metacognitive modeling in front of the kids because if they don't learn that failure is really just an opportunity to figure out what needs to be tinkered with, they're going to grow up and be obsessed with perfection and then perpetually disappointed. They're not going to build any resiliency. And resiliency is one thing that we don't model enough in school. They just assume that we're smart and we, you know, we know all this stuff when really most of us don't know it, and some of us are reading two days ahead of our class just to keep up with new content, but they don't see any of the back end. So, yeah, I would say that you'd have to be willing to, to make mistakes, adjust on the fly, and model what you want to see in the kids. What do you think is a mountain yet to climb for you as a teacher? Huh. Well, one of the things that I have struggled with is um, how to teach developmental reading skills to older students. There is absolutely no training provided in the secondary licensure track for developmental reading at all. And on average, the majority of my students came in testing four grade levels below. That means I have students who read at the second grade this year. 
20 students who read at the second grade, and I have no appropriate, age-appropriate strategies for teaching them. And so this is my thing that I am now studying like mad on the weekends and trying to get all the PD I can because these kids want to turn around their situation and nobody's believed in them up until now. Some of them have been actively discriminated against in the education system. And, and I feel like some of that discrimination shows up just in the lack of preparedness in, in secondary educational institutions, just ignoring the fact that we know so many of our kids are coming in so far behind. This can't be new news. The state test has been around for, what, 15, 20 years now? It's not like we don't have the data. But still, like, we hired the, the woman who's teaching ELA instead of me right now as a first-year teacher last year, and she also had zero instruction on developmental reading. So nothing had changed in 20 years. As we move into Act 3, if you were given infinite resources and time to do something new or some way to morph your career, what would it be? You know, I've been asking myself that question quite a bit. Um, I have a pretty serious health condition, and at times it's life-threatening. Right now it's stable, but even the specialists say that it won't always be this good. And so my husband and I have actually been actively discussing what, what would I do when I'm not able to keep up with the students anymore? And one of the things I'm exploring is grant writing to strictly go into the behind the scenes of program design for educational programs, both school day and like before and after school programming. I actually just became the program director for the 21st century um, CCLC grant for ECA's brand new before and after school program. And through the training and all the networking, um, I've met a whole host of other Alphabet Soup organizations who all provide supportive programming to the educational system and to other nonprofits that work with kids. So if I had to pick something this week, that might be something that I would do. Yeah, nonprofits typically work on real shoestring budgets, too. Yes. Um, I could do amazing things with a shoestring. I really have just one last question for you to riff on a little bit. You know, most people's direct knowledge of schools is through their children and maybe a bit through their own distant experience as a student themselves. What do you think that people who don't spend a lot of time in schools these days need to know? Wow, that's a really good question. They, the people need to understand two things. And the, the first thing is that people don't become educators for the money or the great benefits or the mysterious summer off that I have yet to experience <laughs> because I'm, you know, chronically underpaid and always have to work a second job. We become educators because we passionately care about learning and working with kids who are, are curious and excited about the world around them. Or in, in my case, you know, we 
work with kids who we know don't have the best home lives or neighborhoods or communities. And we want to provide that social safety net that got us through situations. Some of my coworkers that are my age, we still remember when the, the school was the center of the community, where like in small towns, everybody goes to the Friday night football game. I remember when that happened in the city. And that's one of the things that I designed um, our after school program around was sort of bringing community and the family back to the school building as the center of activity. And yeah, we're not in it for the money. I mean, we're there for the, we're there for the people. I want to thank Lynn Wilcox for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Our podcast is produced by Eclectic River Daydream. You've heard from us, and now we want to hear from you. Leave us feedback on our website at storypod.us or on Facebook at American Storyteller. Until the next time you hear from me, I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller.